you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. Jacob has called his sons together and he tells them, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob, listen to your father Israel. But what we find in the verses that follow is much more than mere prediction. As we read in verse number 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them giving each the blessing appropriate to him. And as we shall see, the blessings pronounced were not all the positive things that we associate with the word blessing. Um, In fact, what we looked at last week, the words to the first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, surely did not sound like blessings. But then we have what was said to Judah, the wonderful promises made to him, followed by Zebulun, You may remember that it is strange that Zebulun is mentioned at this point because he is not, in fact, the fifth son. He is the tenth son, but he is brought up to the front, I would argue, in fact, because where Jesus was born in the territory of Judah, he was raised in the territory of Zebulun. Remember that scripture is a revelation of the creator. And the supreme revelation of the creator is Jesus Christ, the exact representation of his being. So knowingly or not, Jacob is pointing ahead to the coming Messiah, coming from the line of Judah. We see that in the blessing given to Judah and growing up in the region of Zebulun. When Jesus began his ministry, he began in the territory that was once known as that of Zebulun. Um, We read this in Matthew 4. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So while Jacob is, in fact, blessing his sons or correcting them, he is ultimately pointing to the Messiah. One thing I didn't mention last week is that it is said that Zebulun would become a haven for ships. Uh, And it has been pointed out that, in fact, Zebulun was a haven for the child Jesus. That, remember, they escaped to Egypt And then they came back, and the sense is that Joseph, who was from the town of Bethlehem, originally his ancestors were, had, I think, wanted to stay in the area of Judea, as it was known then, but the tribe of Judah. Um, But then he found out that even though Herod the Great was dead, his son was in his place. He was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, that is the territory of Zebulun. And so it is, in fact, a haven. Now we're going to look at the sixth son, that is Issachar, verses 14 and 15, here in Genesis chapter 49. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. 
When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. He is Leah's fifth son. Uh, Zebulun is, in fact, her sixth son. His name means wages or reward, and two things are pointed out about him. Um, Hardworking, you know, a raw-boned donkey, okay? But secondly, there was a willingness to exchange freedom for material comfort. So he's lying down between saddlebags, and when he sees how good is his resting place, how pleasant his land, it's like, okay, this is cool. That he is willing to give up freedom and liberty just so he can have the material things that he wants. Certainly something to be learned from that. The next son is Dan, verses 16 and 17. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backwards. In the order of birth, Dan was in fact the fifth because Leah had four sons and Rachel saw that she couldn't conceive and so she gave in fact her handmaid to Jacob so that she could have children through him. This is from chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah, his wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me, for he has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this she named him, Dan. Dan also means vindicated or judged. And as was the case with Reuben, the firstborn, there is a chasm between the original calling and, in fact, the achievement of these the sons, this son, these sons, and their descendants. Dan was to provide justice for his people, as one of the tribes of Israel. Instead, we read in verse number 17 that he becomes a serpent along the roadside, a viper along the path. He is treacherous and he is cruel. As a horse goes by with a rider, the serpent will bite the heel of that horse and the rider will fall down. There's several things to note about the tribe of Dan, not found in this passage. First of all, when uh, Jacob and his sons go to Egypt, were given the names of the sons and their children. Not for Dan. In fact, what we read for Dan is the son of Dan, Hushim, which actually in Hebrew is the sons of Hushim. It's a tribal name. It's not a personal name. And then in Numbers chapter 26, when Moses takes the second census of the children of Israel, The only name given is Shushem, and it's a clan name. It's not a personal name. So we're not told anything of the descendants of Dan. Well, we are later on. Uh, But when they list all the names, these are the sons of Reuben. These are the sons of Simeon. We're not told these are the sons of Dan. 
In First Chronicles chapters 2 through 10, we're given the genealogies of the tribes of Israel, but not of Dan. In Hebrews 7, I mentioned this earlier, where we're told about the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, uh, Dan is not mentioned, neither is Ephraim. In Judges 18, we find that, in fact, Dan was the first to fall into idolatry. And when the 10 tribes separated from Jerusalem, that's Benjamin and Judah, the 10 tribes of the north, their king, Jeroboam, said, this is not good because everyone will keep going back to Jerusalem for the temple. Um, and they're like, oh boy, maybe, maybe the, our disagreements weren't as big as we think and they'd want to reunite. So instead, he built two golden calves. He put one in Ephraim and one in Dan. These became the center of idolatry. Not a pleasant picture. And that's why verse number 18 is really intriguing. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. With all the negative things that, in fact, Jacob has said about his sons up to this point, he reminds himself that salvation, deliverance, comes from the Lord. All is not lost. By Reuben, he will not excel. He is, he is as unstable as water. Simeon and Levi will be scattered through the tribes. Issachar will just be happy, you know, take my freedom, just make sure that I have the material things I want. And now Dan is, in fact, a serpent, treacherous. He who was supposed to be a judge, in fact, is the one who leads the way in idolatry. But it is God who will rescue his people. Verse number 19, Gad is mentioned. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. He is the seventh son born to Jacob through Zilpah, uh, Leah's handmaiden. Because we use an English translation, Genesis was originally written in Hebrew, we miss some of the subtleties of what Jacob said. Verse number 19 in Hebrew has six words, okay? Four of them are variations on Gad, okay? Um, the English Standard Version, the ESV, I think does it justice. It says, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Gad means raiders, okay? So the word in Hebrew for Gad sounds like raiders or raid. So raiders raid Gad, that's three times, and he shall raid at their heels. When Israel arrived at the Jordan River to cross over to the Promised Land, three tribes said, yeah, we don't want to go. We want to stay over here. Uh, there's good land, we have large herds. Um, Numbers 32, do not make us cross the Jordan. Yeah, we don't want to do that. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. That means that they are in fact more vulnerable to raiders. Had they been on the other side of the Jordan River, and you have the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, these are sort of natural barriers, they would have been better off. And because Gad chose to stay on the east side of the Jordan River, they, in fact, were susceptible to raiders. But Gad would fight back. And when Moses blesses the tribes before his death, 
He said, blessed is he who enlarges Gad's domain. Gad lives there like a lion, tearing at arm or head. He chose the best land for himself. The leader's portion was kept for him. When the heads of the peoples assembled, he carried out the Lord's righteous will and his judgments concerning Israel. So again, all is not lost. The next son is Asher. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide uh, uh, delicacies fit for a king. Uh, Asher means happy, how happy I am. Uh, Leah said, the women will call me happy. This one, for me at least, is somewhat strange. Delicacies fit for a king. Asher would be located at the most northern part of Israel, and it would, in fact, include Tyre and Sidon, even though these later on will become purely Gentile uh, towns. Um, they belonged in the territory of Asher. And when it was time for David to build a palace, Hiram, the king of Sidon, the king of Tyre, provided the materials and the workers. These were the delicacies fit for a king. And when Solomon wanted to build a temple, King Hiram of Tyre provided the materials and the workers for this temple. These were the delicacies fit for a king. But there's also one delicacy mentioned in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary take the infant Jesus to the temple to present him before the Lord, we know the story of Simeon, right? Where Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We all know that. The Latin nunc dismittis. Now dismiss or let your servant go in peace. Dismiss me. I've seen your salvation. But there was somebody else, and we're not as familiar about that. I don't think we have any songs about this person. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. It's interesting, of all the ten tribes to the north, this is the one mention of somebody being from one of those tribes. It's from the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She's like, he's here, this baby. This is the salvation God is providing. And I would say this is a delicacy fit for a king. The next son is, in fact, Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Um, Naphtali means struggle. I've had a great struggle with my sister, and I have one. But Jacob views Naphtali as a deer that has, in fact, struggled. One can imagine that it's been caught in a trap, and now it has been set free. And as a result, all of his descendants would be people who struggled for freedom and, in fact, would be free. The hero of this tribe is a man named Barak that we read about in Judges chapter 4. There was a prophetess named Deborah, and she tells Barak, listen, 
I want you to lead God's people in fighting against those who are occupying us. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon or Kishon River and give him into your hands. And Barak won, in fact, a great victory. And then remember, when Jesus began to preach, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 9, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. When Jesus began, or when he spoke in Nazareth, we don't know exactly when this was, but it was probably early on in his ministry, he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, and he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yes, in fact, this is something that we find in this tribe, and that is a love of freedom. Uh, quite different from the other tribe that was Issachar was willing to give up freedom in exchange for material security. Then in verses 22 to 26, we come to the longest blessing of all. This is for Joseph, uh, Jacob's favorite son, Rachel's first son. He was the 11th son born to Jacob. Follow along if you would as I read this. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and womb, your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all those, these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. This blessing can be divided into two parts. The first is sort of a, yeah, I know what happened. In verses 22 to 24, he looks at the past. And then there is a looking to the future. We do not know we're not told how much Jacob knew about what happened to Joseph. We don't know if, in fact, he found out that his sons had sold Joseph into slavery. He did know they were jealous of him before he disappeared. Um, he didn't know about him being sold into slavery, we think, or did he? Did Joseph tell him later on that he worked for Potiphar and that Potiphar's wife uh, tried to seduce him and he ran away and so he was imprisoned as a result. Um, in these verses we know, we sense that Jacob recognizes the hostility that was directed against Joseph. But he also knows that his son Joseph persevered because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the two names of Jacob. These are different titles for God the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Now that's in the past. 
what is going to happen in the future. Knowing that the Lord, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel, has stood by Joseph, Jacob now pronounces the blessing on Joseph. And here we, the language is very similar to what we heard when Isaac blessed Jacob. And I would insist that of the 12 sons that are mentioned here, Joseph is the one who gets the blessing, the blessing of the firstborn. Let me read to you what Isaac said to Jacob. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Jacob only had one brother. And yet Isaac is saying that in fact he would be Lord over his brothers and his mother's sons would in fact bow down to him. Well, when Jacob years later speaks to Joseph, he says, let, these, all, let all these rest on the head of Joseph on the brow of the prince among his brothers. I mentioned last week that as it's giving the, the uh, genealogy of Reuben, and before the other tribes, he's the oldest, um, well, we read this. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then in parenthesis, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belong to Joseph. And what is the right of the firstborn? What does it mean to be firstborn? What do you get? Well, in Deuteronomy 21, we are told in a very indirect way. Let's say a man marries two women. And one of them he loves and the other one he doesn't. It's hard to imagine, but let's go with that. That's what it says. And the one he doesn't love gives birth to a son first. And then the one he loves gives birth to a son. He can't say, well, this is my firstborn. No, you may not love his mother, but he is the firstborn. And as firstborn, he gets a double portion. So when the inheritance is divided up, the firstborn gets twice as much as anyone else. Okay. Did Joseph get a double portion? If you look at a map of Israel, and you're usually at the back of a Bible, how it's divided among the tribes, as I told you, there is no territory of Joseph, right? But you know what? There are actually two territories of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the double portion. He's the firstborn. He gets the double portion. Instead of there just being, oh, this is for Joseph, there's now Ephraim and Manasseh. He gets the double portion. And then finally, we come to verse number 27 for Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravening wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. and In the evening, he divides the, the, the plunder. This is Jacob's 12th and youngest son. And if you read through the Old Testament, Benjamin is, in fact, the most warlike, the fiercest of all the tribes. And this is what Jacob prophesies for his youngest son. 
So this is Jacob blessing his sons. If you look at verse number 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving to each the blessing appropriate to him. So I said at the beginning, some might say, well, this for some cases, like with Benjamin and then Reuben and Issachar and others, it doesn't really sound like a blessing. It sounds more like a scolding, um, closer to cursing, perhaps not cursing, but but pretty close. Um, it's certainly more negative than it is positive. And for us, blessing is always positive, and so any hint of negative sort of bothers us. I would say two things. First of all, what may appear to be harsh or scolding or negative may in fact be the path to blessing. The picture that comes to mind for me, the metaphor, is that of it's, it's medical in nature. When one goes to the doctor due to a serious condition, some of you have experienced that, the prescribed treatment may in fact seem harsh, even cruel. Certainly, we'd put it in the negative category rather than the positive category. An outsider might even think it's barbaric. You're going to do what? You're going to cut me open? You're going to take something out? But the doctor who prescribes it does so in order to restore health, in order to make one healthy, so that something which we might view as negative is in fact a positive. It brings back good health. It restores a person's health. So when Jacob scolds his sons or tells of a dark future for his, their descendants, this is in fact a call to repentance. It doesn't have to be this way. If you continue on this path, this is what's going to happen. This is what it's going to be like. And we saw that with Levi. Simon and Levi were both told that they would be scattered among the tribes. But when Moses came down from Sinai and saw the golden calf, he said, who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites joined him and they went out and brought God's judgment on their fellow Israelites. They chose a different path. This was the path in a sense described for them. But in fact, something very positive came as a result of their obedience to God. You might say, wait a minute, okay, I'd said last week that Jacob was a prophet. He's speaking prophetically here. Um, so it has to happen, right? If a prophet says something, it has to happen. Not necessarily. I don't think so. This is the second thing that comes to mind. And let me spend some time here. I would argue that what Jacob prophesies need not come to pass. Really? How can that be? Well, there's a, a, an interesting story in 1 Samuel chapter 23. David is on the run from Saul. And he has about 600 men with him. These are people who are not happy with King Saul. And Saul wants to kill David. Because he knows that if he doesn't, uh, David will be the next king. So David is with these men. He's in, in the area, the territory of Judah. And he is told there's a town in Judah, Keilah. And the Philistines are attacking it. They are looting the th threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord, 
saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. And so, in fact, David does this. David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. And then there's a parenthetical thing there that Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. So David rescues this town. Saul hears about it. And he goes, he starts to head toward Keilah so he can capture David. He said, Saul said, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. David is inside the walls of Keilah. I got him. Saul called all, all his forces to battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. This is what the high priest wore. We're not exactly sure how this worked. We knew that on one shoulder is Uman, the other is Thummin. And this may be a way of you know, yes or no type of questions. Anyway, David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender, him, or surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. That is, Saul is in fact coming. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. So David asked God several questions, okay? Is Saul going to come down? Yes, he's coming. Will the people, the citizens of Keilah, turn me over to him? Yes, they will. Just parenthetically, what a bunch of ungrateful people. He had rescued them from the Philistines, and now they're going to turn him over to Saul. So will Saul come? Yes. Will they turn me over to him? Yes. So what does David do? He leaves. Did Saul come? No. Did the citizens of Keilah turn him over? No. It's like, wait a minute. David asked the Lord what would happen, and in fact, it didn't happen that particular way. What was foretold did not, in fact, happen. And someone might say, well, Damon, that's different, okay? Because with Jacob, he's speaking prophetically, okay? And in the case of uh, David, it's sort of a hypothetical, you know, it's all going to come, and if he comes, will they turn me over? Um, some years ago, 2008, 2009, so many years ago, we studied the book of Jeremiah. And it is Jeremiah speaking against Judah. And in fact, the Babylonians are going to come in as punishment for their idolatry. We're told at the end of chapter 51, and these are the words of Jeremiah. And then there's chapter 52 that we think uh, somebody else added on that sort of wraps it all up. But in chapters 50 and 51, we are told of the coming judgment on Babylon. There are at least three significant problems 
when looking at these chapters. First of all, in the book of Jeremiah, the Babylonians are the good guys. They're coming to punish God's people for their idolatry. Why is God now judging the Babylonians for doing his will in coming against the Israelites? Babylon was God's instrument, and now they are going to be judged. The second problem is that earlier in the book, the Lord instructed the exiles, because some had in fact been taken to exile in Babylon, to pray for Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we have a situation in which the people of God are in Babylon, and they are told to pray for Babylon. It's basically praying for their enemies. And they are told, if it prospers, you too will prosper. So how are you supposed to pray for a city or an empire upon which God has pronounced judgment? So there are two problems here. Can the instrument of God be judged? Apparently it can. And how are the people of God to pray for that which will be judged? Yeah. But there's a third problem. And this is the big one, the most difficult. What is prophesied in chapters 50 and 51 of the judgment that will happen to Babylon ended up not happening. It didn't happen. Jeremiah is a prophet. He is speaking the words of God. God is speaking through him. And he is prophesying judgment on Babylon. But it doesn't happen. Um, I'll go at verse 58 and then work backwards in chapter 51. Babylon's thick walls will be leveled and her high gates set on fire. Verse 54, the sound of a cry comes from Babylon, the sound of great destruction from the land of the Babylonians. Verse 44, and the wall of Babylon will fall. Verse 43, her towns will be desolate, a dry and desert land, a land where no one lives, through which no man travels. We could go on. Yes, the Babylonian Empire did, in fact, fall to the Persians. But we don't find the death and destruction that is mentioned in chapters 50 and 51. The people of God did not have to flee for their lives. Cyrus comes in as a liberator to a city that is intact, a city that welcomed him. Half a century later, another Persian king, Xerxes, will come in, and he will put down a rebellion, and he will, in fact, smash the walls. But the city of Babylon remained until the 7th century AD. So what's going on? God had said that judgment was coming, and it didn't happen. Well, the answer we find in chapter 18, when Jeremiah is told to go to the potter's house. And we read, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And do we find such repentance? Gia read it to us today in the reading from the Old Testament from Daniel chapter 4. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. 
Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with, all, with the powers of heaven, the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And here we find the answer to our dilemma. Because of Nebuchadnezzar's repentance, humbling of himself, and affirming that, in fact, the Lord is God, Babylon was not destroyed. Yes, it was conquered, but it was not devastated, as is spelled out in chapters 50 and 51. And we are reminded here of God's great grace and mercy, but also human responsibility to change our way of thinking, to turn from our sinful ways and to turn to him. Jacob's blessings on his sons were, in some cases, a call to repentance. Reuben, you and your descendants do not have to be as unstable as water. That's the way you are now. You don't have to stay that way. Danites, you don't have to lead the way in idolatry. You don't have to be treacherous and cruel. Issachar, yeah, you love your freedom, don't you? As long as you can have material comfort, you don't have to be that way. That the call of Jacob is, in fact, a call to repentance. So I said last week, some people might say, it's unfair that the descendants of Reuben are subjected to this fate. That they have to suffer because of the sins of their ancestors. And what we find is not some fixed fate. Um, and in what Lonnie read to us today, we do not believe in fate. And oftentimes our view of scripture and the prophetic word, oh, that's fate. It has to happen that way. No, Jacob's sons could have repented. Their descendants could have repented. The Levites did. They were made the tribe of priests. Verse number 18, I think, is the key to this whole chapter. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. It is God who provides redemption. It is God who provides salvation. For all the negative things said about some of his sons and their descendants, God is still there. He is still the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Jacob reminds himself in the midst of saying some pretty negative things about his son that ultimately salvation comes from the Lord. And ultimately salvation will come from the tribe of Judah. But all is not lost. We shouldn't read this chapter and say, it's really not fair. Why did their descendants have to be that way? They didn't have to be that way. God is a God of grace, and he calls his people to repentance. 
Let's pray together. Our Father, I think it is human nature to want to know the future. And there are those through horoscope, divination, other ways, tell us that in fact they can tell us what our future will be. And with that mindset, when we read this chapter, we might think, oh, this, this is the future of these tribes. That it had to be that way, when in fact it didn't. Levi is proof that it doesn't have to be that way. And what Jacob says in verse 18, that salvation comes from you. This is a reminder that it isn't all up to us. That if in faith, instead of trusting in ourselves, we look to you, then our futures could be far different than what one might anticipate. Our lives are in your hands. They always have been. But we tend to squirm, twist, somehow try to get out of your hands and and to do things our own way. And perhaps like Reuben, we become unstable. And like Issachar, we choose material comfort over freedom that you've given us. And God forbid, like Dan, we lead people into idolatry, being treacherous and cruel. God of all grace, God of all love, we bow before you. We ask for your forgiveness, for your grace, and ask that you would guide us in the path of obedience. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Turn them from stone to hearts of flesh. May we be people who rejoice in serving, not because we're performing, not to get your approval, but because it's the right thing to do and there is the pleasure of doing what is right. Spirit, we ask that you would speak to our hearts in the coming days, bring these things to our memories. May we meditate on them. I pray for the congregation as Guy and I will be gone the next Sunday, for Tom as he speaks, for each one as they do their part in the service. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world, wherever you take us. Thank you for your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.